0: Five, four, three, two,
1: one. This is William Friedkin. Vertigo is a film about obsession and guilt. The obsession kicks in from the very first notes of Bernard Herrmann's incredible music score, which is actually derived from Wagner's Tristan and Isolde. Uh, But Herrmann was such a brilliant composer of music, uh, and he, he completely captured the tone and spirit of this film, and the film itself is inseparable from Herrmann's great score. The film stars James Stewart and Kim Novak. It's called vertigo, and vertigo, of course, is what results from acrophobia, which is a fear of heights. And the fear of heights results in a kind of dizziness, uh, a a, a not unpleasant dizziness, in fact, that's known as vertigo. The original title for vertigo was From Among the Dead. And it's obvious that Hitchcock only used the novel as a starting off point. Vertigo is originally derived from a French novel. and it was the novel was written by two uh, writers called Boileau and Narcissac. Who were famous for having written the great uh, suspense horror film Diabolique? The director of photography was Robert Burks, who did 11 films with Hitchcock, 11 of his greatest films. And the editor was George Tomasini, who, um, starting with Rear Window, edited eight of the great Hitchcock films. Hitchcock loved to work with the same people. He believed in in loyalty, Uh, the people he worked with, including Edith Head, who did the costumes, and Bernard Herrmann, who he did several scores with. they knew what Hitchcock wanted. The Hitchcock didn't have to say a lot. He didn't have to tell them. He never looked into the camera. He knew what the lenses were getting. Herb Coleman, who was the associate producer, actually the line producer on this film, uh, had worked with Hitchcock many times. And Hitchcock could sit in his chair and let the whole let the crew do the film because they knew exactly how he would want to do it. This film opens with a a rooftop chase over uh, the streets of San Francisco. And the mood as it um, is set by the chase um, winds up setting forth the whole premise of the film, the acrophobia of the main character, the detective played by James Stewart, who uh, is really in a situation that's beyond his control. He has to leap from building to building and he does have acrophobia and ultimately vertigo. And in this first scene, he's literally hanging suspended over an abyss, which is a metaphor for everything that happens to the Stewart character throughout the rest of the film a police officer who's accompanying him on a chase of this unknown person. We never get to know anything about the crime or why the man is being chased. It's there simply to set up that not only is Stuart a victim of acrophobia and vertigo, but now he he is harboring a tremendous sense of guilt for the police officer's loss of life in trying to save his. The scene switches very quickly to the apartment of Stewart's one-time fiancé, now close friend, whose name is Midge. Midge is kind of a commercial artist, played by Barbara Bel Geddes, and she's still very much in love with the Stewart character, who's called John Ferguson, or his nickname is Scotty. Um, But she calls him John, and most of the people who know him well call him John. And in this particular scene, we see that Ferguson has gotten over his acrophobia for the moment by resigning from the police force uh, over the guilt as well. And he tells Midge that he doesn't know what he's going to do anymore, but he's certainly not going back to police work in case he encounters a situation like this one again. It's never made clear how he got out of that situation where he was hanging over the side of that very flimsy ledge. But this film, as with most Hitchcock films, are told from the point of view of emotionally disturbed people. The story itself, and I'll refer to the story as as it goes along, but only peripherally, because in a Hitchcock film, the story is less important than the visual impact. There is no great concern for plausibility. You will find much of the plot as you watch this film stretches credulity and and in itself is pretty implausible. Hitchcock was influenced by Edgar Allan Poe as a child. And Edgar Allan Poe specialized in completely unbelievable stories that were told to the readers with a kind of spellbinding logic. And that's what Hitchcock has done with Vertigo. Vertigo is probably the most personal of all Hitchcock films in in, in the sense that it deals very powerfully With Hitchcock's own obsession for a certain kind of woman and his inability to really make contact with that woman and to communicate with the woman. Hitchcock's desires were mostly imprisoned in the body of a very lonely young boy from a small town in England. His father was a a greengrocer, also a fishmonger. And Hitchcock, very early on, found a way to suppress his obsessions through his work as a film director. And he became more than a storyteller. He became a master technician of his obsessions. This picture is clearly the one that goes the deepest into his own fears and his own sense of being imprisoned uh, inside of a body that did not permit him complete freedom. The characters are often that. In this film, the characters are completely imprisoned by their obsession. Hitchcock. Use this ce- long scene between James Stewart and Barbara Bel Geddes to set up the fulcrum of the plot, which is that an old college roommate named Gavin Elster, who will be played by an actor called Tom Helmore, has called him and asked him to come and see him. Now, Elster is a, um, a man who runs a shipbuilding company that's owned by his wife's family, and. Hitchcock set it up so that the steward character, who has just retired from the police force, who had at one time wanted to be a chief of police, he was a young law student in the backstory, that one day wanted to be the chief of police. And now he's quit the force, and he has no immediate prospects. At this moment, he's demonstrating how he thinks he can cure himself of his acrophobia. With the Gate he's going to climb to ever more heights, starting small. He's going to start with a little stool and then a larger stool. And he's going to stand on the stool gradually, step by step, looking up and then down. And he's demonstrating to Midge, who is really in love with him, but it's, not, it's unrequited. He's demonstrating to Midge, now his friend. That he can look up and look down and not be disturbed by what he sees looking down, uh, although acrophobia is very difficult to cure, and can only be cured by a really by a similar event that is uh, traumatic, as the original cause of it was.
0: Right, here we go. No problem. Ah. Well, this is a cinch. Here, I look up, I look down. I look
1: up, I look down. At this moment, he looks down and he sees a view similar to the street below when he almost fell off the building and the police officer lost his life trying to save him. There's Hitchcock himself, by the way. He just walked by with a peculiar looking instrument and in a. Black case. It might have been a trumpet, or I don't know what the hell it was. It could have been a, a dead fish, for all anyone knows. But that was Hitchcock's habit of appearing briefly in a shot in one of his own films. It was kind of his stamp.
0: No, to be honest, I find it dull. Well, you don't have to do it for a
1: Hitchcock later had this office, which was a set at the old Paramount lot designed by the great scenic designer Robert Boyle who also worked with Hitchcock a number of times. Many years later, Hitchcock wanted to have an exact replica of this set put into his study in his home in Beverly Hills. And he had Boyle come over and uh, make a virtually exact replica of this set. The things that spell San Francisco to me are disappearing fast.
0: Like
1: all these? Yes, I should have liked to have lived here then. Color, excitement, power, freedom. Uh, shouldn't you be sitting down? No, no, oh, I'm all right. But in this scene between Gavin Elster and Scotty Ferguson, Elster tells Ferguson that he's concerned about his own wife, whose name is Madeline Elster. He believes that, Madeline believes that she's possessed by the spirit of a dead woman named Carlotta Valdez, and that the dead woman is driving her to commit suicide. That the, the dead woman, who is immortalized in a painting in the famous Palace of the Legion of Honor in San Francisco, the dead woman has possessed the spirit of Elster's wife, Madeline. And she goes off on these long drives, and he has no idea where she's going. And he wants Scotty, who now appears to be a man at ease, to tail his wife and tell him where she goes and what she does. Now, Scotty is not at this moment looking for a job or looking to be a private detective or tail anyone. He tells Elster that he'll get him a team of crack uh, private investigators, but Elster is insistent and says, no, I want to hire you. Now, Scotty has never seen Madeline Elster. And so, toward the end of this sequence, Elster proposes that Scotty comes to a very famous San Francisco landmark restaurant called Ernie's, which closed in 1999. And he says that, He and his wife, Madeline, will be there for dinner on their way to the opening of an opera at the San Francisco Opera. And Scotty agrees to come to Ernie so he can get his first look at Madeline Elster and try to help his old college friend, Gavin Elster. Once again, you have to understand that while this film seems to be very plot heavy and extremely well plotted. This film is in no way about its plot. It is about obsession and guilt.
0: Then with a long sigh, she's back. Looks
1: at me brightly. Hitchcock at the time he made this film said that he was intrigued by the hero's attempts to recreate the image of a dead woman through another woman who's alive. That was what drew him to this story, and Elster has now told Scotty that he believes his wife is a suicidal neurotic possessed by the spirit of a dead woman. And while Scotty is completely skeptical, something draws him to want to help out his old, his old college friends. Elster has expressed the feeling that he um, is not really happy running the shipping business. It belongs to his wife's family. And Elster has come back to San Francisco to run the business. But he really doesn't have his mind or his heart in it. I've got Scotty, where she goes and what she His concern for his wife's problem seems to be uh, really grating at him. And he's looking to Scotty Ferguson to provide some kind of an answer as to his wife's mysterious behavior.
0: Look, this isn't my line. Scotty, I need a friend.
1: Like many scenes in Hitchcock, this one appears to be too long and have too much exposition. But gradually, you'll see that the movie settles into a kind of, uh, dreamlike quality, where the exposition becomes less and less. This is a replica of Ernie's restaurant in San Francisco, which used to be considered one of the two or three best steakhouses in the country. This was built on a set in Hollywood, as was the exterior of Ernie's. As I said earlier, Ernie's closed in 1999. And in this moment, we see Gavin Elster, in a corner, or in a in a booth toward the back of the restaurant. And Scotty Ferguson's first view of Madeline Elster is from the back. Hitchcock was often fascinated by the back of a woman's head. And you'll see in particular why he was fascinated by the back of Kim Novak's head uh, in this scene and throughout the film. But his first look at Madeleine Elster, played by Kim Novak, with a very prominent green satin collar, he first sees her almost framed by green and red. She's extremely beautiful, hauntingly beautiful. The kind of woman that is really an obsession and is the kind of a woman that could uh, turn a man like Scotty's head. And so he's hooked. He's hooked by the vision of Madeline Elster, and he decides on the next morning to try and follow her throughout her day. The next morning, he goes to the outside of her apartment building, which is on Knob Hill, California Street, near Mason, where he sees Madeline Elster And she's driving a green Rolls Royce. He has no idea where she's going. She's dressed in a gray dress, which makes her look like someone that has come out of the San Francisco fog. And Kim Novak fought very hard not to wear gray. She felt that the gray was not a good color for her uh, bleached blonde hair. And she didn't want to wear the gray dress, but Hitchcock knew precisely how he wanted her hair, precisely how he wanted her to dress, which is ultimately what happens to Scotty Ferguson, who has to dress her and do her hair and make her over into his vision. And so they go on a tour into the heart of San Francisco And she takes a kind of curious and circuitous path. And gradually it seems that she knows that she might be being followed. So she turns into a little cul-de-sac, which is very near Union Square in San Francisco. And she goes into this little alley or cul-de-sac where she parks and gets out of her car and goes through a nondescript alley door. Stewart's curiosity is now becoming very piqued. He follows her to this back entrance of we know not what at this time. It looks like a kind of a storage room or in a warehouse. It has a mysterious and dark quality, which is really a kind of a false lead. Because when he opens the door, he finds nothing truly mysterious or shocking or disturbing, but the interior of a beautiful flower shop where Madeline Elster is about to order a particularly beautiful bouquet that will appear to be a funeral bouquet. You see her reflected in a mirror right next to where Stuart is standing, watching her. This is the first of many mirrors that will appear in this film reflecting and re-reflecting, giving us double images of the characters and reflecting other sides of the characters. The film is in many ways filmed with mirrors and is in fact a mirror to the soul of not only the Scotty Ferguson character, but Hitchcock himself. As Madeline takes him further on their journey, They leave this little cul-de-sac, go deeper into the heart of San Francisco, where they stop at a little church, which is called the Mission Dolores. And it's still there in the heart of San Francisco. And there is a kind of a Spanish theme to this film, as reflected in one of Bernard Herrmann's themes for the movie. The idea of old California deriving from old Spain. And Hitchcock takes the Scotty Ferguson character into this church, or this old mission, where he sees Madeline go through a side door and he follows her into a cemetery. Some of the Ideas in the, f- in the film reflect Hitchcock's own Catholic upbringing as a child in uh, a small town in England. The cemetery is, is shot in a very hazy, dreamlike manner, but because of the flowers and the plants, it's rather peaceful and beautiful. And Scotty sees that Madeline is standing near a gravestone, just staring at this gravestone, in effect communicating with the spirit of the dead. There's a marvelous mixture in this scene and in many others. For example, this shot of Stuart who was originally photographed in in an actual graveyard with Kim Novak, but the closer shots are all done against a process screen, or rear screen, which Hitchcock loved to use. He would do exteriors and wide shots on location, and then take the closer shots into a studio and shoot them against a film projection of the background so he could control the light and the camera angles Better and not have um, people watching as spectators. We see Madeline take the bouquet that she has brought to this cemetery, and she reflects on it. And you think that she might be leaving it at the grave marker, but she doesn't. She takes it with her. And so Stuart tries to get the name on the stone, which is Carlotta Valdez who was born in 1831 and died just a short time later. And the pursuit continues. He follows her to the Palace of the Legion of Honor, which is a very beautiful art museum in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. This interior of the Palace of the Legion of Honor is probably a set, uh, both a set and a rear screen projection behind Stewart. And he sees Madeleine Elster sitting in front of a particular painting for what seems like a very long time, just staring at the painting. The painting she's looking at is of the woman whose grave marker we just saw, Carlotta Valdez, and the bouquet of flowers that she bought at the flower shop is the same as the one Carlotta holds in her own hands. The swirl of Kim Novak's hairdo is similar to the swirl in the hairdo of Carlotta Valdez, and also becomes a metaphor throughout the film from the very opening credits of the kind of spiral that leads someone down, the kind of dizziness that occurs through vertigo that leads you as though downward through a spiral over an abyss.
0: Say, will you tell me something? That uh, that lady sitting in there, who's the woman in the painting she's looking at? Oh, that's Carlotta. Find it in the catalog, Portrait of Carlotta. May I have this? Yes.
1: Eventually, Madeleine leaves the Palace of the Legion of Honor and continues steward on what seems to be a wild goose chase, driving as though aimlessly through downtown San Francisco. She comes to an old, Victorian Hotel, it's called the McKittrick Hotel, and this building actually existed. It no longer does. It was at the corner of Goff and Eddy Streets in San Francisco. Again, behind Stuart, there's a, another Catholic church. The old Victorian building has great similarity to the mansion in Psycho that was the home of Norman Bates' mother behind the Bates Motel. And Stuart clearly sees Kim Novak in the window up on the second floor of that hotel. And so he goes in and he inquires about the woman living upstairs on the second floor. And it turns out that the woman who is the manager of the hotel, has no idea that the Kim Novak character has gone upstairs. She tells Stewart that she hasn't even been here today. Now, the interior of the McKittrick, which is undoubtedly a set, has, as you will see, tremendous resemblance to the interior of the Psycho house, the interior of the house where Norman Bates' mother lived. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if the set for Psycho was a redress of this particular set. Psycho was made less than two years later on the Universal back lot.
0: She done something wrong? Uh, Please answer my question. I can't imagine the
1: Universal Backlot is where I first met Alfred Hitchcock. Spanish, you know. About eight years after Vertigo, about six years after Psycho. I directed the very last Alfred Hitchcock Hour that was made. It was called Off Season with John Gavin. And it was about a police officer who kills someone by mistake in a, in a big city and is so traumatized by the act of having killed an innocent person that he leaves the city and goes to a smaller town with his wife where he becomes uh, the local police officer in a small town. And I directed the film in five days. Hitchcock uh, in those days would only come in and read his introductions off off what we call an idiot card. It's where you had all your notes next to the camera and you just read them. Hitchcock would come in one day a week and read these notes, uh, which were his brilliant introductions to all the segments of the Hitchcock Hour. And I was a young man in my 20s who had never done anything on a sound stage, but had made a documentary film that impressed Hitchcock and his producer. And so they asked me to do one of the, as I say, the very last Films for Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And I remember one day when Hitchcock came on the set, and he was introduced to me, and he held out his hand with his fingers sort of drooping as though I was supposed to kiss his hand rather than shake it. And I was kind of put off by this, but I said, oh, Mr. Hitchcock, what an honor it is to meet you. And he looked at me, very critically, and he said, Mr. Friedkin, usually our directors wear ties. And uh, I said, oh, yes, well, I I guess I forgot my, and he was off. He took off, and he didn't uh, say another word to me at that time. Then about four years later, I had just won the Directors Guild Award at the ceremony at the Beverly Hilton Hotel and it was also a dinner. And there was Hitchcock in a table with his family right down below where I was standing to accept the award. You know, that's an and as I, I made my acceptance speech and then I walked down a short flight of steps and I had one of those snap-on bow ties and I snapped it at Mr. Hitchcock and I said, I was holding the DGA award, which is a big gold-plated plaque. And I snapped my tie at him, and I said, how do you like the tie now, Hitch? And of course, he didn't remember or know what I was talking about, but I remembered. I carried that with me for four years and still do. In any case, after his day following Madeline Elster around, Scotty Ferguson goes back to the apartment of his ex-fiancee, Midge, played by Barbara Bel That's a beautiful view out the window of San Francisco, but it's a, it's a photographic plate. It's, they're not really on location. The apartment is built on a set, and what you're looking at is a backdrop, and which Hitchcock was always fond of using these artificial backdrops sometimes they're even obvious often they're too obvious but hitchcock constantly was trying to remind the audience in a way that they were watching a movie that it was an artificial experience but like with his hero edgar Allan poe told with a with a tremendous sense of logic about something that was really illogical midge has a friend who runs this bookshop called the argosy bookshop and she takes scotty there because the guy who runs the bookshop is a kind of an expert on the history of old san francisco and especially the hispanic influence and he tells them a story about the real carlotta valdez who was a a real person at the turn of the 19th century in San Francisco from a royal family, a wealthy family, and uh, she had committed suicide. And so the painting at the Palace of the Legion of Honor is a painting of a real person. And somehow or other it appears that Madeleine Elster believes herself to be a reincarnation of Carlotta Valdez. And in this scene, the old owner of the bookstore tells Scotty and Midge the history of Carlotta. He had no other children. His wife had no children. So he kept the child and threw her away. You know, men could do that in those days. They had the power and the freedom And she became a sad Carlotta, alone in the great house, walking the streets alone. At this point, Hitchcock is trying to provide not only a logical base for this story, but a historic base. And it turns out that in fact, this legend of Carlotta Valdez is really a part of San Francisco history. And Hitchcock uses it to try and provide a firm foundation for what is an almost completely illogical story. Again, I have to say that Hitchcock is not interested in the story. He's interested in mood, in atmosphere in a story that's largely being told by the characters' reactions and the way they're photographed. The film is beginning to take on not a logical quality, even though it's, there's an attempt being made here to provide a solid foundation for it, but the film is beginning to move in a more dreamlike way, where the obsession of Madeleine Elster with Carlotta Valdez is being transferred to the obsession by Scotty Ferguson with Madeline Elster. And so these are the early stages of this obsession. And Midge, his friend and former fiancé, is trying to understand what's going on with Scotty, what he does with his days where he goes, and he simply tells her that he goes wandering, and he gives her no information about Madeline. Eventually, she'll wind up following him, following Madeline. And the curious relationship becomes more and more twisted. Scotty begins to wonder himself what it is that's overtaken him. Who is this Carlotta Valdez person whose portrait is immortalized in the museum? He begins now to freely associate Madeline Elster with Carlotta Valdez, and he's bought totally into this hook. He brings the catalog to Gavin Elster, he explains to Gavin where his wife has been going day after day, time after time. And it appears that he has reinforced Gavin Elster's notion first put to him, Scotty, that his wife has become possessed by the spirit of a dead woman.
0: Now, Carlotta Ball, this was what? Your wife's grandmother? Great grandmother.
1: No, the child who was taken from her, whose
0: loss drove Carlotta mad into her death, is Madeline's grandmother. And the McKittrick Hotel is the old Valdez home. Well, I think that explains it. Anyone could become obsessed with the past with a background like that. She never heard of Carlotta Valdez. She knows nothing of a grave out of the Mission Dolores or that old house on Eddy Street.
1: What Elster is not aware of is that Scotty himself is beginning to have strong emotional feelings for Madeline. And in the mind of Hitchcock, this is really a sort of an illicit relationship. Madeline Elster is the wife, not only of another man, but a man who was his old college friend. And so Scotty's desire for this woman is a kind of a is a kind of a sin. Boy, I need this. If Madeline Elster is so fixated on committing suicide to join with the spirit of the woman she believes has possessed her, it now becomes Scotty's mission to try and save her from herself. She goes back to the Palace of the Legion of Honor on another day, a beautiful San Francisco day in Golden Gate Park, and stares again at the portrait of Carlotta Valdez. She's completely drawn into the mystery of Carlotta. Again, she has the little funereal bouquet. And this time she leaves and heads further north up the coast and toward the Golden Gate Bridge. She comes into the old Presidio, which was a military base and you can go through the Presidio to a place called Old Fort Point, where they are now, which leads you to a ground-level view of the Golden Gate Bridge. And what, what happens now is one of the most famous and memorable scenes in world cinema where, beneath a glorious view of the Golden Gate Bridge, Scotty sees that Madeline Elster has left her car to wander along the brake front there. Now, this is an actual place. That's not a rear screen projection, although the, the shot of James Stewart is a rear screen projection. They would first go out to the locations and shoot the long shots like this, and then they would come back in and recreate a portion of that view, that magnificent exterior, on a soundstage so that Hitchcock could do his close-ups more easily and light them more carefully and without the watchful eyes of a group of tourists. One of the things that Scotty has learned is that Madeline has just reached the age of 26, and that was at that same age that Carlotta Valdez commits suicide. He saves her life, and he brings her home to his apartment overlooking Coit Tower, and Telegraph Hill. The exterior of this apartment still exists in San Francisco. The interior is a set with a very badly painted backdrop. The lamp is painted on the backdrop. Sometimes it's painted on, sometimes it's painted off. But again, Hitchcock had to know and not really care that the audience could tell they were looking at a painting of a backdrop, not an actual location. There's nobody on the streets out there, it's a, it's a large photograph, and again it's Hitchcock's attempt to sort of nudge the audience into realizing that this is a film, and that they're being manipulated, and he loved to manipulate the audience more than anything. It was the thing that most concerned Hitchcock.
0: No, it's all right. I'll call you back. Yes. Yes. You all right?
1: It becomes clear in this moment that Scotty has had to undress Madeline. Her clothes were dripping wet. He had to take them off, and he put her into his own bedroom. And we now realize that he has seen her nude body. But it's done, of course, very subtly by Hitchcock. Hitchcock, as a stylist, is interested in pure suspense, pure cinema. There's never an attempt in a Hitchcock film to present something as complete reality. With rare exception, there was a film he made before Vertigo called The Wrong Man, which was a documentary-style film about a falsely accused uh, uh, man who uh, was a musician, and he resembled somebody who had committed a crime, and he was convicted uh, falsely of this crime and went to prison. And Hitchcock did a laborious almost scene by scene recreation of the story of that man who had been wrongfully accused. But other than that, all of his films deal with dreamlike states, um, nightmares, not reality. He had no sense that the important thing in a film was logic, although there are many logical moments in many of his films. But as you'll see in Vertigo, you'll see that Vertigo itself okay. is an elaborate hoax. This whole first part of the film, Thank you. which is being presented as the story of this woman who is possessed by the spirit of a woman who commits suicide and is trying in her own way to commit suicide, the whole, this whole first part turns out to be a hoax, a game, a trick on the part of the director Alfred Hitchcock, to mislead an audience. Hitchcock's interest, as he stated many times, was to involve an audience emotionally, not logically. He was more interested in pure cinema, what the camera saw, and how it captured the emotions and reflections of the characters, rather than a story that was grounded in truth and logic. He would make a number of attempts to offer a logical and even a truthful foundation for parts of the story. But his real gift to cinema is as a master of artifice, a master of a technical genius who mastered the art of driving an audience's emotions. And therefore, his interest in the logic of a story was almost nil. And as we all know, our fantasies and our dreams are not at all in any way reflected in logic. They come to us with a strange kind of continuity that makes sense to us ultimately after it's over, or doesn't, but we never think of as real when we wake up. The situations that our minds, that our imaginations create are what Hitchcock does with a movie. And no film is more of a dream that becomes a nightmare than vertigo. That by the look of many of the actual locations, by the look of the sets, appears to be something real, but is ultimately just a background for a fantasy. The Kim Novak character, again, is the ultimate Hitchcock Blonde, the ultimate fantasy, the unattainable, the woman that he both desired and was repelled by. And as you'll see, and with only little hints like the way she looks at Stuart from time to time, only occasional hints that she's really an evil figure. Nevertheless, Stuart falls in love with her
0: call me Scotty. I shall call you Mr. Ferguson. Oh, gee whiz! I wouldn't like that. Oh no. And after what happened this afternoon, I should think maybe you'd call me Scotty. Maybe even John. Well, I prefer John. Yeah, that's done. And and what do you do, John? Well,
1: just wonder about. Hitchcock was an observer of life. He was hardly a participant. He and his wife, and occasionally their daughter, would would take a number of vacation trips. But other than that, Hitchcock, as a man of cinema, is the ultimate voyeur, watching people's emotions, creating their emotions, and then watching them, offering almost no comment about them. I mean, Hitchcock does not sit in judgment of any of his characters, ever. No, it's never happened before. Oh, I've, I've fallen into lakes out of rowboats
0: when I was a little girl. I even fell into the river once trying to leap from one stone to another. But I've never fallen into San Francisco Bay. Have you ever before? No. <laughs> well, it's the first time for me, too. Here, I'll get you some more coffee.
1: The film, as I mentioned earlier, is much, much more about obsession and could have been called obsession than vertigo or acrophobia. This is a film about a man's growing obsession for a woman that he hardly knows, that he knows little to nothing about simply her appearance, how she looks. And there's no better heroine than Kim Novak to embody this almost animal sexuality that she does. The premise of the film now as we look at it becomes even a bit shakier. James Stewart was a great film actor, but probably too old for this role. see that Midge, Scotty's girlfriend, has been following him and has observed that Madeline Elster came to Scotty's apartment. The following day, he resumes his pursuit of her. Again, she comes out of her apartment building, gets into her car, and wanders off somewhere, and by now, the audience is totally hooked. Where's she going? What's going to happen to her? She tried unsuccessfully to commit suicide. What's next? This time, she takes a particularly securitous route, going right and then left and right again, seeming to lead him on a wild goose chase he follows nevertheless. He's completely obsessed with this woman now, quite apart from having agreed to follow her on her husband's behalf. He's now pretty much following her on his own behalf. is confused at this time as Hitchcock takes him on a kind of a magical mystery tour through the streets of San Francisco. It seems that she's heading down again toward the bay, but in fact, she's turning away from the bay. And she's arrived through this circuitous route back at Scotty's own apartment, where he's followed her and sees that she puts an envelope under his door. All of this is, of course, a hoax on her part to lead him further into a web. The note which he retrieves was a a thank you note for saving her from the bay. Here you get a look at Kim Novak in all her glory in one of Edith Head's most incredible creations, this wide-collared white coat, white against white. White blonde, white coat, white wall. Hitchcock breaks almost every rule of color of a color film. And yet it works, and it's it works because it's so highly original. A lot of these portraits are, could be hung in a museum. They're such beautiful uh, realizations, almost like great paintings of the characters. We see that uh, Scotty's apartment here is in Telegraph Hill overlooking the Coit Tower. And that's how she tells him she remembered where he lived. She remembered the Coit Tower and its relation to his apartment. She tells him that she's just gonna go off wandering with sort of no destination. And he asks if he can come along with her, if they can wander together. And she tells him that when Two people wander together. They usually have a destination, and they're not just wandering anymore. They're going someplace for some reason. Oh, I don't know. And we begin to see that the Kim Novak character
0: no, I just thought that I'd
1: wander. is having a kind of an emotional reaction to the Stewart character. But is it real, or is it? Part of Hitchcock's elaborate hoax. This unusual circumstance, al- almost implausible circumstance, of Stewart being hired to follow a man's wife because the husband is curious about where she's going and thinks that she might be about to do harm to herself. A very strange sort of a situation but made real and concrete by these extraordinary and glorious locations. Hitchcock was equally fascinated with the northern coast of California uh, as he was with the major centers of Europe where he grew up and visited many times and in this sequence They've driven to the Big Basin Redwoods State Park, where the giant sequoias are. And supposedly, I guess, it's a stand-in for Muir Woods, where the giant Redwoods are, which are much closer to um, the area w- where they are in San Francisco. Muir Woods is no more than a half hour away from the center of the vertigo story. But this is Big Basin State Park, and these are the giant sequoia trees. And there's a sign on which it's written that the sequoias are always green and ever living. And the rings of the tree are indicated by the dates when various events took place in the life of the tree, various historical events. And at one point, Madeline gestures to a spot on the tree rings and says, Here I was born, born. and here I died. died. With a kind of indication that, like the giant sequoias, she's ever living. At this point... You could be watching a dream, your own dream, this character's dream. Everyone who has been captured by vertigo enters it slowly as though entering into one's own dream or nightmare. And that's what's happening to the character of Scotty too. His movements become slower. The shots slow down, the pace. He loses Madeline only to find her again. He's drawn closer and closer to the mystery of this woman, while understanding nothing about what's going on with her.
0: Madeline, where are you now? Here with you. Where? Don't trees. Have you been here before? Yes. When? When were you born? How long ago? Where? When? Tell me. Madeline, tell me. No. Madeline, tell me what
1: it is. Where do you go? No, I what can't takes you, tell you away? You. When you jumped into the bay, you didn't know where you were. You guessed, but you didn't know. Jump.
0: I didn't jump. I fell. You Why told me you I jump? fell.
1: He has fallen in love with a vision. What? What? Possibly a vision of his own dreamlike conjuring. Uh, And we begin to think about the myth of Carlotta Valdez and if if that's really the basis for Kim Novak's breakdown, if she herself is a real person or a figment of Scotty's imagination. But again, she is this idealized woman that he can't help but be both attracted to and ultimately repelled by, which is basically the story of Hitchcock's own obsession that he was so magnificently able to work out in his best films.
0: I'm responsible for you now. So the Chinese say that once you've saved a person's life, you're responsible for
1: it forever. It almost appears as though we're in a travelogue now of Northern California. They're at a place called Cypress Point. But the lone cypress tree there, which is based on an actual tree that exists at Cypress Point, this one is a prop. And these shots were made in a studio. And the background is simply uh, background projection of a location and the characters are matched against these filmed backgrounds in a studio. Now at this time when this film was being made, Italian neorealism had been recognized as a great cinematic style. The Italian neorealists had strongly influenced American filmmakers as did the French New Wave And they were shooting films on location, sometimes using uh, scenes that were not lit at all or badly lit, but were in fact on location. Hitchcock wouldn't even bother to, to try and do a film completely on location like that. So again, an audience that was schooled in the Um, techniques of cinema could see that this is a rear screen background and not a realistic place and again this is not something that bothered Hitchcock because Hitchcock's philosophy was wherever he took the audience the audience would go there and be very pleased to be there and so he was using all of the elements all of the techniques of cinema that he knew and understood perhaps better than any other filmmaker who ever lived. And so in watching the dream or the nightmare play out in Vertigo, only the purest cinema disciple is disturbed by the artifice that they're looking at. And the idea of logic and reality just doesn't really exist anymore. We're caught up in this dream. We ourselves are the participant in this story. It's almost voyeuristic. Hitchcock has turned the audience into rooms full of voyeurs. Here's this incredible moment where the waves break, and the music breaks, and the two lovers kiss in one of the most passionate kisses that Hitchcock ever photographed. And this was Hitchcock's real gift, to make voyeurs of all of us. Scotty goes back to Midge's apartment. And Midge, who's followed Scotty to the places where Scotty has followed Madeline, tells him that she's returned to her first love, which is painting. She's no longer doing advertising pictures. And she has a surprise for Scotty. She makes him a drink, his famous scotch and soda.
0: What was this? Um... What was this desperate urge to see me? All I said in my note was, where are you? Doesn't sound very desperate to me. No, I detected a little undercurrent.
1: She says, I thought if I made made you a drink, you'd take me out to a movie. And he says, sure. There's a lot of drinking that goes on in this picture, in restaurants and apartments. The solution to almost everything is to have a drink. And you see this constantly. The, the same themes appear over and over in this picture.
0: Wandering. What have you been doing?
1: So Midge gives uh, Scotty a drink, tries to get out of him his admission of what he's been doing with his days seemingly nothing, but he can't talk to her about them. He can't talk to anyone about them. She tells him she has a, a surprise for him.
0: You want to see? And when he
1: goes to look at her painting, he sees that she's placed herself in the costume and the background of Carlotta Valdez. And Scotty doesn't find this funny at all.
0: It's not funny, Midge.
1: It's now too close to the bone. Johnny, I just thought. This myth of Carlotta and the myth of Madeline Elster have combined to completely obsess him. And Midge realized that she's crossed a line with Scotty that'll be very difficult to come back over.
0: Marjorie, what are
1: you, fool? Idiot! She realizes that her own obsession with Scotty has caused her to perhaps lose him forever.
0: Stupid,
1: stupid, stupid. We see a, a very haunting shot of, Scotty, probably played by a double here, because we never really see Stuart wandering around Union Square at night, aimlessly. He goes back to his apartment, and as dawn breaks, he's fallen asleep. But his doorbell rings. But someone appears at the door. This is truly a disturbing moment. A Madeline has come to him at dream. dawn.
0: Dream came back again. Uh, right.
1: We see that her own obsession about the possibility of her being driven to some dark fate <laughs> has escalated. It was a dream. By now, the two of them are in love. Well, her me? motivation is totally unclear. He has fallen in love with possibly a dead person, possibly a dream. And Hitchcock said that what attracted him to an emotionally disturbed man is his attempt to recreate the image of a dead woman through another one who's alive. In Hitchcock's own description of these characters, what is occurring is a kind of necrophilia, which is really an almost unmentionable sexual aberration, the desire to go to bed with a dead person. That's what is happening here. The Kim Novak character is representative of a dead person, of a woman who very soon will be dead.
0: You've been there before, you've seen it.
1: And then reborn.
0: I've never been there. Oh, Scotty, what is it? I've never been there. Think hard.
1: Now go on about
0: your dream. What was it that frightened you so? I stood alone on the green, searching for something. And then I started to walk to the church. Then the darkness closed in, I was alone in the dark.
1: The place that Madeline tells Scotty that she's seen in her dream is a place that Scotty knows. He It's familiar to him. He recognizes it. He believes it's an actual place and that he can take her there. And so they make an appointment to meet that afternoon and drive up to this place where Madeline says is her dream, but is actually a place that Scotty has himself seen before. It is, again, an actual um, location. It's about 100 miles south of San Francisco on the coast. It's known as the Mission of San Juan Batista, or St. John the Baptist. And it's an old Spanish mission that they get to, founded in 1797, very near Monterey. And this is an actual location. It has a remnants of an old town, a courthouse, a stable, and the mission itself. Scotty takes Madeline into the stables to show her that the place that appeared in her dream is a real place that undoubtedly she's seen before. And he's trying to make sense out of her dream. But understand this, her dream isn't real. Again, this is part of the entire first part of this film. Well over an hour into the film itself has all been a hoax. Kim Novak is amazingly effective here as a woman who seems to be wandering around in a dream world uncertain of who or what she is or what's in store for her, while Scotty tries to show her that the gray horse that she saw in her dream was just this sort of um, replica of a horse, that the location she described is a very famous landmark on the coast of California, and not simply a place in her dreams where she is... Slated to die. But Kim Novak acts the part of a woman whose destiny is beyond her control, who is following her own obsession, her own drive towards suicide. Oh, no, we're
0: together. Oh, it's too late. But it's something I must do. Nothing you must do. No one possesses you. You're safe with
1: me. And just as Scotty doesn't want to let her go, Madeline is drawn away from him, out of his arms, and toward the mission tower. Hitchcock here has created a tremendous sense of unease both in the part of his characters and the audience. We know that something dreadful is going to happen. We, we're not sure quite what, but very shortly, it will occur to us before it occurs to the James Stewart character. You believe I love you?
0: Yes. And if you lose me, then you'll know I, I loved you and I wanted to go on loving
1: you. He begs her not to go alone into this tower because he knows that she believes this is the place where she'll die. She moves dreamlike toward the mission, looks up, and there's the one shot that tells the audience what is likely to happen here. She's going to the top of that tower and he's gonna follow her. But now we remember that he can't go to a high place, that he still has his fear of heights. And in this sequence, Hitchcock dramatizes his acrophobia. He dramatizes it with a shot that was made with a miniature looking down from the interior of the tower. That's a miniature and the camera is both dollying back while it's zooming in. It's a dreamlike motion where you are both coming and going at the same time. The camera moves back, the zoom on the lens goes in, and you are caught in the middle someplace. And as Madeline goes to the top, Scotty can't follow her and he sees her body dropping from the top down to the stones below. And she's fulfilled her dream of death, and he's witnessed her suicide. Along with everything else, his sense of guilt kicks in, and he realizes that he himself is in some way responsible for her death, and he is further drawn into the Position of a man hanging over an abyss. While the nuns of the mission come forward to retrieve the body and a priest appears, Scotty slips out. As viewed from above, as though he's being judged by a higher power, he slips silently away from the scene of the crime that has shattered his life. There's a long sequence here of a coroner's inquest, where the coroner lays out for the local selectman the situation as he understands it, repeating in clear, logical terms, what we've seen as a kind of a dreamlike situation.
0: And you have heard that Mr. Was to take his wife to an institution.
1: The coroner's played by a great old character actor and veteran of other Hitchcock movies called Henry Jones. He describes to the selectman how Gavin Elster sent Scotty Ferguson, a retired cop, to follow his wife, to see what the nature of his wife's illness was, in a way to try and prevent her from an act that she thought was inevitable, that of killing herself, but that Scotty completely failed in his duties to Elster. And the question becomes, is he responsible for this woman's death or could he have prevented it?
0: Character and ability. Captain Hanson was most enthusiastic. The fact that once before, under similar circumstances, Mr. Ferguson allowed a police colleague to fall to his death, Captain Hanson dismissed
1: Next to him at the inquest is his chief of detectives, who was there as a kind of character witness for him. And the Henry Jones character. The coroner lays out a scenario that draws home to Scotty, even in his catatonic state, that he shares a kind of guilt for Madeline's death. And we see simply by watching Stewart that Stewart feels this guilt way beyond anything that he actually did. We now know that Scotty tried to save Madeline's life, but that it was hopeless. And now there is the possibility that he will be found by a jury to be guilty of her death. The Gavin Elster character is, of course, completely exonerated. He tried to do the best for his wife. He tried to get... A man who he knew and trusted from their college days together to kind of follow her and protect her from herself, and it's all backfired. We listen, as the jury does with great interest, to how a group of ordinary men formed into a jury will interpret these proceedings. And the question at this point in the film is whether Scotty will in fact be found guilty of the death of Madeline Elster. We've
0: reached a verdict. Thank you. The jury finds that Madeleine Elster committed suicide while of unsound mind. Your verdict will be so recorded. Dismissed. All right, Scotty, let's go. Mind if I speak to you
1: in a minute? Oh, go ahead. Elster takes Scotty aside and tells him that he's leaving San Francisco, he's leaving the shipbuilding business. He never liked it. He's going to Europe. He's sorry he got Scotty involved with this. Scotty is too blown away to understand what he's being told. He has now, for the second time, been a victim of his own acrophobia and having caused the death of somebody else as a result of it.
0: Is there anything I can do for you before I go?
1: This is the end of the first part of Vertigo. The next part is almost another movie. And the great technique that Hitchcock has managed to bring about is pulling these two parts together into a hole in which Part two, while confusing us at first, provides a kind of, quote, logical, unquote, explanation. Scotty goes back to see the grave in the old cemetery now, and it's Madeline's grave. we realize that he will never sleep a trouble-free night again. He dreams of the tremendous tragedy brought about by his acrophobia and vertigo. He gets certain clues that don't really come together for him in this nightmare of what has happened the elements that set apart brought about the tragedy the necklace of carlotta valdez the beautiful brooch that will later become so important to this story as he wanders through his nightmare so he wandered through this last adventure leading to the death of Madeline, through a cemetery, into the empty grave that she thought about, that he said was nothing but a nightmare. Now he shares this nightmare, and in his fantasy, his vertigo, is an image that becomes indelible in his mind and in the minds of the viewer of this film. At this point, there's only one place for him, and that's this kind of psychiatric nursing home.
0: Mozart. Wolfgang Amadeus. I had a long talk with
1: lady Midge film. comes to see him, tries to cheer him up, brings him some Mozart music. He can't relate to her or to anything that's going on around her. She's his ever loyal friend who stays with him, who loves him, but is helpless at what's become of him. She's trying to get some answers, too, as to the terrible twist that his life has taken, the spiral of which he's become a part that has, at this point in the film, destroyed his life
0: shuts off automatically. Oh, Johnny. Johnny, please try. Try,
1: Johnny. Midge's appeal is that of a loyal, here. devoted friend, and more than a friend, the woman who loves him. But she can't reach him. There's nothing she can do to prevent his descent. And we now become aware that the tragedy that was Madeline Elster's will soon become Scotty Ferguson's. Mozart's no help. Midge's no help. Scotty is contained in a cage of his own making. You
0: don't even know I'm here, do you? could I see the doctor for a moment? Doctor, Miss Wood, won't you go in, please? Yes, Miss Wood. Doctor, how long is it going to take you to pull him out of this?
1: Midge goes off to see the psychiatrist who runs the hospital. And she learns from him that only another emotional shock can cure something like Scotty's acrophobia.
0: I can give you one thing. He was in love with her.
1: Oh, that does complicate the problem, doesn't
0: it? I can give you another complication. He still is. You want to know something, doctor? I don't think Mozart's going to help at all.
1: And so part one of Vertigo comes to an end. But remember, part one was simply a hoax, as you're soon to discover. I tell you that knowing that you haven't come to the end of it, or you've probably seen it if you're listening to this commentary, so you know what's coming. But Hitchcock would want you to know that as well because he's soon going to tell you that everything you've seen is a hoax. Scotty goes back to the apartment building where he first saw Madeline and he sees her car. It is in fact her car. He sees a a blonde woman coming out who's going to drive the car. But he finds out that this woman is much older than Madeline was, and that she, in fact, bought the car from Gavin and Madeline Elster before they moved out of San Francisco. i beg your pardon. Car.
0: Why, I bought it from a man who used to live here in this apartment building, Mr. Gavin Elster. I bought it from him when he moved away. Oh, you knew him and his wife, the poor thing. I didn't know her. Tell me, is it true that she really? I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: This is the beginning of Scotty seeing Madeline everywhere. He goes back to the place where he first saw her, Ernie's restaurant. Again, this is a set, the exterior and the interior. Scotty's drawn back to these places as we are drawn back to a recurring nightmare. What is he doing there? He's probably hoping to see the ghost of Madeline. And he sees a woman sitting at the same table where he first saw her, but now she's coming toward him. It's not from behind, but it's not Madeline either. Any well-dressed and attractive blonde woman that he sees retracing the steps of his journey toward Madeline reminds him of her. He sees her over and over again, both in dream and in these places. He sees the bouquet of flowers that Madeline bought that she let fall into the San Francisco Bay. And very quickly, he sees a woman that looks very much like Madeline. She's wearing a green dress now. And remember, the first concrete image that he saw of Madeline, she was wearing green. And so the color green now becomes a motif that draws him to follow this woman who has something of a resemblance, it seems, to Madeline, but not quite. He follows her to a place called the Empire Hotel, which still exists in San Francisco. It's now called the New York Hotel. It's at 940 Sutter Street. That's the actual location. There's Stewart in front of a filmed backdrop. And he sees this new woman, who looks like Madeline, again in the second floor of an apartment building, not the McKittrick, but the Empire, and he follows her to the floor where he believes she's staying. It's become clear that the Scotty Ferguson character, played by James Stewart, is completely possessed by the spirit of Madeleine Elster. What happens to an audience when they see the film for the first time at this point is the audience knows that this is Kim Novak, that Kim Novak played Madeline, and now she's playing this new woman called Judy. But what is Judy Barton's relationship to Madeline Elster? They're played by the same actress, but now she speaks with a different voice.
0: Well. What is it? I ask you a couple of questions. For who are you? My name's John Ferguson. Is this some kind of gallipoli? Oh no, just a couple of things I'd like to ask. You live in this hotel? No, I happened to see you when you came in, so I thought I. I... Yeah, I thought so. A pickup. Well, you've got a nerve. Follow me right into the hotel and up to my room. Now you beat it. Go on and oh, beat please, it. please, I just want to talk to you. Listen, I'm going to yell well, in a listen, minute. I, 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 I'm not going to hurt you. Honest, I promise.
1: The audience at this point is completely confused. We have gone where Hitchcock has led us. We're happy to be here, but we're confused. What relation is this woman, Judy Barton, to Madeline Elster? The coincidence of Scotty seeing her so quickly after the inquest is remarkable. But he tells her that she reminds him of someone, and he he's drawn to her, and we see how drawn he is to her. You don't need words in this scene to understand what's going on with him. With her, you have no idea.
0: don't look very much like Jack the Ripper. What do you want to know? I want to know your name. Judy Barton.
1: She acts completely the innocent. In front of Scotty, she doesn't know who he is or why he's followed her up here or what he wants from her. But he tells her that she reminds him of someone. And in the original novel, from Among the Dead, by Boileau and Narcisse this mystery continues until the very end of the book.
0: gosh, do I have to prove it?
1: She shows him her driver's license showing him proof that she's Judy Barton from Elvira, Kansas. Judy Barton. She works at Magnum's, which is a real, was a real department store in Union Square in San Francisco. She's lived in this apartment for three years, found Kansas boring and came to San Francisco for adventure. And she has visible proof that she is who she is. Here's the mirror again, reflecting her double, but not him. And we, we have the knowledge that he doesn't, that this is the same actress who played the dead woman. She's,
0: she's dead, isn't she? I'm sorry. And I'm sorry
1: I yelled at you. He sees photographs of her parents in, in Kansas. Her father's standing outside of a hardware store with his name on it Barton Hardware. That's her mother on the porch of their house. So she's clearly not Madeline Elster. And as you will soon find out, she is not Madeline Elster.
0: Will you have dinner with me?
1: Scotty, by way of apology, but more by way of obsession, invites Judy to have dinner with him that evening. For some strange, inexplicable reason, Again, defying logic, Judy agrees to have dinner with Scotty. Would you do that with a guy who followed you up to your apartment off the street? But now, Hitchcock tells you, the audience, but not Scotty, exactly who this woman is. Through a, a flashback that she envisions we see that indeed she did go up into the mission tower followed by Scotty. That she indeed went up the stairs. That he experienced his vertigo. But he couldn't follow her all the way up. And as she went up through a trap door, Gavin Elster threw his real wife out the window of the mission to the steps below, while he and Judy hid in the shadows and waited for Madeline's body to be claimed, and then they drove away. So you now know, the audience knows, at this point in the film, that Judy Barton and the so-called Madeline Elster are the same person. And this is Hitchcock's definition of suspense. The Hitchcock definition of suspense, as he stated it, is take a situation where two people are having a conversation at, let's say, a dinner table. And the conversation goes on for five minutes. And then at the end of the conversation, a bomb goes off, blowing them both up. Now, the audience is shocked, but there has been no suspense. The five minutes of conversation has been boring leading up to the bomb, because the audience didn't know that the bomb was there. Now however, if you show the audience that a bomb is under the table, Every second of this five minute conversation is fraught with suspense because you are in on the secret. You know a bomb's going off, the characters don't. And your heart is beating for fear of what's going to happen to them. In this case, Hitchcock doesn't wait until the resolution of the film to tell you that Judy Barton is in fact the woman who played Madeleine Alster who was the mistress of Gavin Elster, and participated with him for money to help him murder his wife and set up Scotty so that Scotty would have witnessed a suicide. And it becomes like a perfect crime. And so now we know that these two women are the same, but Scotty doesn't. And so we become more and more afraid of what's likely to happen to him when he discovers it. Because the woman he's in love with, that he falls in love with again, the dead girl who comes back into a living person, is the same person. And she's evil. She is a murderess. She was going to write him a note and tell him all of this, but she decides not to hoping against hope that he won't discover who she is because it turns out that she too is in love with him and now you see how illogical this situation is the chance meeting on the street scotty seeing madeline everywhere very quickly becomes concrete that He actually sees her again, still in San Francisco. Why wouldn't she have left town? Why is she living in an apartment building very near to where he lives? How is it that he has so quickly discovered her again? Doesn't know who she is, but she knows who he is. He continues to see images of Madeline even in other women. And Judy Barton now knows how deeply he loves her and is obsessed by her.
0: See you tomorrow? Tomorrow night? Well,
1: no. And again, in an echo of the green fog and the green dress, the green collar that Scotty first saw Madeline framed within, Hitchcock repeats the theme of the green background as a neon light shining out the window of Judy's apartment. Hitchcock is using colors to trigger memory states. The story has now given up any sense of plausibility, that this situation could be real. So, but what is more real than the situation and the story is the obsession. And that's what Hitchcock is presenting to us in this film. Most filmmakers, most directors will look at a novel or a play or an original screenplay and be drawn to it because of the story. The plot has been the staple of Hollywood films almost from the beginning, but film itself is like Film itself has the ability to convey a dream state. Film is the closest thing to dreaming. We sit in the dark and watch these images, and the images conjure certain feelings, like memory, obsession, and guilt. And that's what Hitchcock is doing in most of his films, but in this film, more than any other. We see them now in another classic san francisco location this is the palace of fine arts which was designed by the great bernard maybeck a famous berkeley architect and it was built for the panama pacific exposition of 1915. so we in addition to having this extraordinary obsessive dream we've been on a kind of guided tour of the highlights of San Francisco, which are very real and very concrete, but also very dreamlike in their own way. The Palace of the Legion of Honor, the Palace of Fine Arts, the uh, Big Basin State Park where the giant sequoias are, these are all extraordinary uh, places to set a murder mystery about obsession. That And Scotty's obsession has grown deeper. He now wants to dress Judy to look exactly like Madeline. Now remember, we the audience know that Judy is Madeline. Well, she's not Madeline because Madeline was Elster's real wife. Judy was Elster's mistress, who he paid and persuaded to help him kill his wife. But so deep was Scotty's obsession with Madeline that he wants to dress Judy in exactly the same way that Madeline was dressed. It proves to be a rather difficult task because the dress that came from this department store is now a number of years older, and they have to go on a search for it. But as the saleswoman says to Scotty, you certainly seem to know what you want, sir. He wants the exact dress that he saw Madeline wear.
0: You're looking for the suit that she wore for me. You want me to be dressed like her. Judy, I just want you to look nice. I know the kind of suit that would look well on
1: you. No, I won't do it. Judy resists it. Judy. Here again, they're reflected in these mirrors the duality of each character now, as they see the exact copy of the dress. And Judy knows that Scotty won't give up until he's turned her back into Madeline.
0: All right, dear. We'll have it for you to try on in a moment. How long will the alterations take? Well. May we have it by tonight? Well, if it's absolutely necessary. Yes, it is. Now we'd like to
1: look Judy is in, in love with Scotty, but this is so season. clearly a dangerous game that she continues to play.
0: I certainly do know what you want, sir. I'll see what we have.
1: He gets her the exact shoes that he saw Madeline wearing. Uh,
0: and said, do you have them in brown? Yes,
1: we have to think of this situation in any logical way. This is about the time when Judy would check out. I mean, this guy has now, she sees, become so obsessed with the murderess that she was that it can only unravel in another tragic way. And so why doesn't she leave? Why doesn't she just get out of his life? Well, they're both now hooked on opposite sides of an obsession. The movie is not about the plot, it's about obsession.
0: Judy, I tell you this, these past few days have been the first happy days I've known in a year. I know. I know.
1: It's gone from being a murder mystery, where the audience now knows who the murderers were before the ending of the film, into a kind of dream state where the plot doesn't matter anymore. Who or why the murders were committed doesn't matter anymore. This is simply about this man's incredible, unworldly passion for this woman. In dressing her, Hitchcock said, He's trying, really, to undress her. Changing and dressing a woman is like stripping her naked. It's the same thing Hitchcock has said. His love for this woman, his desire for her, is akin to necrophilia, making love to a dead person. I let you change me, will I do it? Hitchcock's own obsessions were both brutal and, and refined.
0: Will you
1: love me? Yes. Suspense is like a woman, he said. The more left to the imagination, I'm the more anything. the excitement. Do he described his perfect woman of mystery as one who is blonde, subtle, and Nordic. The question of this film is no longer who committed the murder, who's gonna pay for the murders. The question is, what's going to happen to these people? Where's this obsession gonna lead him or her?
0: I'm afraid it's gonna take several hours. The young lady thought perhaps you would like to go home and then she'll come there as soon as she's finished.
1: This idealized version of a woman is what the film is now dealing with. The eyes and the lips that we saw in the beginning before the titles of the film are now repeated in a slightly different way as the emotional fixation of changing Judy back into Madeline has become the single most important thing in Scotty's life. He waits for her now to come back from the hairdresser because he's decided to turn her into a blonde. When we know that she was a blonde, perhaps she was a brunette, but she dyed her hair blonde, now she's back as a brunette, and he makes her go blonde again, as Hitchcock made all of his heroines be blonde. In fact the phrase hitchcock blonde has become has entered the english language as a as a very known idea hitchcock's obsession with blondes with the nordic beauties blonde subtle and nordic looking to quote him Judy comes back to her apartment. Madeline has been almost perfectly recreated. Same suit, same color hair, but it's not enough for Scotty. Her hair isn't styled in the same way that Madeline's was. He hasn't achieved his perfect image of Madeline. He hasn't recreated it. He needs, for some illogical reason, to recreate Madeline it. exactly.
0: It just didn't seem to suit me. Please,
1: Judy. And realizing this, Judy goes into the washroom to try and complete the vision to his specifications. Now, the movie code was pretty severe at this time. But we know that what Scotty is waiting for is not so much for her to be coming out of that bathroom dressed like Madeline, but he's waiting for Madeline to come out undressed. He's reached a point where only something very dangerous can happen to both of them. He's in a heightened state, which is where Hitchcock has put the audience, where he has often put the audience. And now, as though coming out of the San Francisco fog, where he saw her at the cemetery, here is Madeline. And it's at this point in the film where I always realize, as many times as I've seen it, how incredibly perfect Kim Novak is, how she embodies this character so completely. I have never felt that Stewart is the ideal guy to play this part, as great an actor as he is, and as true of a Hitchcock character as he is, Kim Novak has become the embodiment of every man's obsession simply by being there. This was a rear screen shot that Hitchcock devised to take them from out of that room back into the stable. They're on a turntable and behind them is a film that is a pan and a splice of one scene to another so it looks as though they exist in two worlds now. which. In many ways they do. It would appear as though their story has reached a kind of happy ending. He's got what he wants. She's Madeline. She has been able to return to him as the one he loved and as herself. She wears the little black cocktail dress that, he, that also belonged to Madeline. And everything is perfect. They're even planning to go out to dinner at Ernie's together, which is the place where he first saw her and that they went back to and revisited. And all of these themes now begin to come together. The places, the looks, the ideas, repeated over and over again. And what could go wrong for them? He has... Created his perfect woman, and she's happy to be it. Can't you see? But here's the MacGuffin, the famous Hitchcock MacGuffin.
0: I'm just about ready. All I've got to do is find my lipstick. You know where do I put it?
1: I the brooch worn by Carlotta Valdez in the painting. That was a gift, a copy of which was a gift from Gavin Elster to Judy Barton, who helped him murder his wife, Judy puts on that brooch. And without a word, we know that Stewart realizes the hoax that he's been a part of. Stewart realizes that the woman in his arms is not a dream, is not a recreation. She's flesh and blood and an accomplice to murder. So the added complication for him is that he's got his true love back, but she's a murderess. And they're not going to Ernie's tonight for that last dinner. He's taking her back to the mission where he's going to put her and himself through the steps that led to the murder of Gavin Elster's wife.
0: Where are you going? One final thing I have to do.
1: In the way that a a mirror image works, reflecting on itself and re-reflecting, so this story works. Places that we saw earlier in one way, in one light, are now played back in a different way, in a different light. And it's as though we we're, were originally going through a tunnel and are now, at this point in the film, coming out the other side of the tunnel, where there is about to be, in this darkness, some light, some revelation. And Judy Barton realizes that Scotty knows the game. He's taking her back to the place where she lured him to become an unwitting witness to the murder of her lover's wife.
0: Right there. We stood there and I kissed her for the last time. And she said, if you lose me, you'll know that I love you and wanted to keep on loving you. And I said, I won't lose you, but I did. And then she turned.
1: Once again, she doesn't wanna go into that mission, but not as before. She doesn't wanna go back up there now because she knows that he knows and what she has to face. Before, when she didn't want to go up, it was an act. She had to lure him up those steps so he could witness the body of Madeline Elster falling to the ground. Now, she doesn't want to go back because of her own fear of how this tragedy could end.
0: I couldn't find her. And then I heard footsteps on the stairs. She was running up the
1: tower. His imagination. Has been so triggered by his recreation of Madeleine Elster that it is now perverted into a sense of violence and anger and brutality. The woman that he so worshiped and adored and was so obsessed by is now a woman that he could kill, that he realizes. Was a phony. What the stairs, Judy. And we now fear the great trick of Hitchcock is we now fear for the life of this woman. Hitchcock has taken a woman, caused her to die, be reborn, and eventually to die again in the same place how illogical that is, but how wonderfully cinematic. And so Scotty and Judy go back up the steps of the mission. The moment of vertigo is repeated in the same way, the backward dolly, the forward zoom. He takes her back up into the bell tower where the murder occurred. And in many ways, in addition to bringing her back so that she will confess to what happened up there, he's taking himself back so that he may cure himself of the condition that brought him here.
0: That was a slip. I remembered the necklace.
1: Let me go. Now we fear also for him. Is she going to push him off? What's going to become of him? He can't go up to this tower, he can't look down because of his acrophobia. Elster and his wife? Yes. Yes, and she was the one who died.
0: The real wife, not you. You were the copy. You were the counterfeit, weren't you? Was she dead or alive? Daddy's Dad, broken her neck. He'd broken her neck. It wasn't taking any chances, was he? So when he got up there, he pushed her off the tower. But it was you that screamed. Why did you scream? I wanted to stop it, Scotty. I ran up to stop it. You I, I, wanted to stop it? Why did you scream? since you tricked me so well up to then. You played the wife very well, Judy. He made you over, didn't he? He made you over just like I made you over. Only better, not only the clothes and the hair, but the looks and the manner and the words and those beautiful phony trances. And you jumped into the bay, didn't you? I'll bet you're a wonderful swimmer, aren't you? Aren't you? Aren't you? And then what did he do? Did he train you? Did he rehearse you? Did he tell you exactly what to do, what to say? You were a very apt pupil, too, weren't you? You were a very apt pupil. Well, why did you pick on me? Why me? Get out of the the I was the setup, wasn't I? I was the setup. I was a maid or order witness. I was. I made it. I made it. We're going up and look at the scene of the crime. Come on, Judy.
1: (laughs) But now he's standing on the precipice, looking down to the place where Madeline Elster was murdered by Gavin Elster and Judy Barton and he tells her that he knows everything that happened and she admits to it. But still, she tells him that she loves him. While he is about to destroy her, she's never been more in love with him.
0: Judy, with all of his wife's money and all that freedom and that power, and he ditched you, what a shame. And he knew he was safe, he knew you couldn't talk. Did he give you anything? It's the money. And the necklace, Carlotta's necklace. There was where you made your mistake, Judy. You shouldn't keep souvenirs of a killing. You shouldn't have been... You shouldn't have been that sentimental. I loved you so, Matthew. Buddy, I was safe when you found me. There was nothing that you could prove. When I saw you again, I run away, I loved you so. I walked into danger, let you change me, because I loved you and I wanted
1: you. For a moment, it appears as though they'll come together again, that their love will triumph over this horrendous nightmare. It's too late. There's no and at that moment, when the story can go no farther, when it's been stretched to the limit, a figure that appears to be death, comes on the scene. Again, one of the most frightening images in the Hitchcock canon, the silhouette of impending death. He looks down, and he's able to look down. He's cured of his acrophobia.